Welcome to the University of South Dakota's podcast, Credit Hour. On this special series, Voices Amplified, we welcome the many individuals throughout our USD community that have unique insight, expertise, and experience with some of the most important issues impacting our communities. Join us as we grow our awareness on topics like social justice, criminal justice reform, and systemic racism. We hope that through these conversations, we can learn not only new perspectives and information, but also challenge ourselves to identify ways we can contribute to creating lasting change. On today's episode of Credit Hour, we speak with USD School of Law Dean Neil Fulton about issues surrounding police and criminal justice reform in America. Dean Fulton, how are you doing this morning? I'm doing great, Michael. How are you? Good, good. Um, Well, you've completed your first year as dean. Uh, How'd the first year go? You know, I survived. I think that's uh, your first benchmark for a successful first year. But uh, honestly, it was tremendous. I uh, I loved my first year in Vermillion at the law school. Uh, I was so welcomed by everyone here and out in the bench and bar and business community. So it's been a great first year uh, as a coyote. Maybe what's something that you learned in your first year as dean? You know, I would say three things really jump out at me. The first is how deep and broad the support is for the law school. The number of people who really step forward to support USD law has been rewarding. The connection between students, faculty, and staff here, uh, it's really a strong community. That's been incredibly gratifying to see. And the last thing is, you know, for someone who came outside of the academy doing some scholarship this year and writing has been really fun and rewarding that was uh, something i learned is i like to do that work um well what have you been writing about you know i wrote uh an article about the sentencing guidelines and tribal court convictions and how those intersect and they impact tribal sovereignty i wrote an article about um some really negative forces in society that we see in, in factionalism and isolation and how the jury trial can resist that. And I, uh, I wrote a tribute that assessed the jurisprudence of Justice Steve Zinner, who is a friend and hero of mine. And that was really fun to, to dive into and do something that honored Steve. No, I mean, so you're approaching now year two. Um, we're recording this about halfway through the summer. I guess, do you have any exciting plans um, that you could share with us about what will happen next year at the law school? Yeah, uh, it's, I think it's going to be a great year at the law school. Even even with the disruption of COVID continuing, it's going to be a really big year for us to build out our infrastructure around the law school. Um, got a big announcement coming about scholarships in the relatively near future. We're going to make some progress on our admissions uh, and recruiting front to expand, hopefully, some in-state tuition opportunities for high-credentialed students from outside South Dakota, some partnerships with Northern and Dakota State to pull more folks in from those areas geographically. We're having some great expansions to our facilities. We're expanding the bathrooms and updating a couple courtrooms, which is just going to provide a nicer environment for students, faculty, and staff. And we're working really hard on our academic excellence program uh, with our bar support and our jumpstart program for incoming students. Half of the incoming class of 2023 is participating in our jumpstart program, which is going to give them a, a leg up on being able to hit the ground running when they come in the front door. No, that's great. 
Um, you know, we wanted to talk to you a little bit just with your experience um, and your expertise in law, kind of the intersection between law and everything that's happening in America right now in the wake of the killing of George Floyd and Breonna Taylor. Um, you know, there have been just a lot of mass demonstrations that have been calling for criminal justice reform. And one issue has been the process by which, you know, I guess the court system uses to determine whether criminal charges should be levied against police officers after someone dies in their custody. Um, just with your experience, I mean, what happens after an officer uses deadly force? What's the process like? Yeah, you know, when I was in private practice, I was I was directly involved in two cases of officers using deadly force. Um, it's a jurisdictional specific decision, but here in South Dakota, most commonly. Uh, the Division of Criminal Investigation is going to investigate that incident just like they would any other incident that could be criminal because you do have the prospect that the officer um, is going to be found to have used force improperly. And so that investigation will take for will take place. Um, you know, the attorney general can assess the case for possible charges. And, you know, you work through that to identify what happened, look at the circumstances, look at whether the um, general guidelines for using force, particularly deadly force, were followed, whether training and protocols were followed for that officer's agencies. And then a decision will be made about what happens, just like any other uh, incident of conduct that could, in fact, be criminal. You know, I think a lot of the protests have been um, directed, I think, a, a sentiment that some of the protesters, I guess, should have is the frustration they have, I think, at the process. I mean, is there a specific legal standard that's used to evaluate whether a police officer can use deadly force or excessive force? And why Why is, I guess, there this sentiment or frustration that um, when you when these incidents happen, and even though you might be able to see it you know, on footage, they're still not charged with a crime? Yeah. So there are specific standards for both of these. I mean, working generally to more specific, Graham versus Connor is the you know, really foundational case on the use of force and excessive force. And the criteria that you look at with officer use of force is, was the force reasonable under the circumstances? And some sub-criteria guide that. Did the, did the person against whom force was used present an immediate threat to the officer or to people around them? And if so, how severe? Um, if someone is is threatening fists, generally you can't use deadly force, but if they have a weapon, you can. You're looking at whether that person is resisting a legitimate application of, of law enforcement force, and you're looking at the severity of the underlying crime. I mean, I think that's one of the things that jumped out for folks with, you know, Eric Garner or George Floyd is these are really low-level offenses, and you had you had deadly force ultimately being applied in those settings. And that certainly bothers people. When you get to deadly force, the underlying foundational case is a case called Tennessee versus Garner. And you look at whether there's probable cause to believe that the person presents a serious threat of physical harm. uh, And if so, you can use deadly force to prevent escape. When you're not in a straight escape situation, again, you kind of fall back to this Graham versus Connor test of, what's reasonable under the circumstances. If you have an individual with a weapon, um, deadly force may be appropriate. And those are the circumstances I encountered. I I think really, Michael, what frustrates a lot of people is they're seeing encounters where deadly force doesn't seem to reasonably align 
with the circumstances that underline the encounter. If you have someone passing a $20 counterfeit bill, um, why do you escalate to deadly force? If you have someone who's selling unmarked cigarettes, why do you escalate to deadly force? I think it's really the alignment of the offense and the conduct and the level of force that's applied. Because I think we all recognize that there are instances where law enforcement has to use deadly force for the protection of themselves and the community. I think another concept that has gained a certain level of notoriety um, with the protests is the idea of qualified immunity. What is qualified immunity and maybe what are some of the pros and cons of ending it? Yeah, so qualified immunity is a is a common law rule, meaning it's a judge created rule that says that we will give immunity against a civil lawsuit for someone uh, who is uh, not violating clearly established law. So if an officer could have reasonably believed that their conduct complied with clearly established law, they are immune from suit. Um, you know, one of the questions that arises there is what is clearly established and some of the frustration people have had with qualified immunity has included that unless it is a perfectly identical factual scenario, some courts have ruled that, you know, it's not clearly established that you're in violation of law. That's not my experience with the cases in the Eighth Circuit. It's, it's approached a more uh, high level of generality there. So I think it, it's less troublesome. But pros and cons, um, a pro of, of eliminating um, qualified immunity would be in a lot of instances, if a law enforcement officer violates someone's Fourth Amendment rights against search and seizure, there can be an absence of avenues to hold them accountable. The exclusionary rule that keeps evidence out at a criminal trial really only applies if it's going to deter officer conduct. So a lot of times there's no penalty there in terms of the evidence being kept out. And if you have qualified immunity really aggressively applied, then there's no avenue for civil lawsuits against that officer. You're kind of left with um, the licensing body and the employment avenues against those officers. And, you know, I think you see places where people feel like that's not being aggressively pursued enough. So a pro of getting rid of it is it provides an avenue to hold misconduct accountable. A negative is that if officers are worried about using force because they might get sued, you're asking people in really high stress situations with really high stakes to make judgments really quickly. And if you are interjecting doubt or concern about these unrelated things from safety, um, that's a potential negative. So, I mean, to me, it's very imperative that you always step back and have very effective policies that are clear for officers and you have very effective training for them and a culture that builds up in law enforcement so that officers are out with the proper policies, with the proper training, with the proper culture to respond appropriately in the circumstance. You know, another idea that I think has gained um, a certain level of momentum or um, at least importance in the media is 
I think, term defunding the police. I mean, what does this term actually mean? How would this uh, work and does it work? Yeah, I mean, first I would say I think it's a terrible term because I don't think most people really are talking about defunding the police. I think when people are talking about defund the police, they're really talking about one of four things, either realigning resources, um, reducing and retargeting resources, restructuring police officers, um, police departments, or reimagining policing. So let's kind of walk through those one at a time. I mean, some people, when they say defund the police, are talking about realigning resources. So often, law enforcement, you know, which is the front door to the criminal justice system, also ends up being the front door to the mental health and addiction uh, counseling system. Because a lot of the folks that law enforcement is coming to contact with are folks whose criminality is being driven by either addiction or underlying mental health issues. And so I think some people, when they say defund the police, are talking about let's let's take resources that are going to law enforcement and reprogram that into more robust mental health programs, more robust addiction programs so that we can steer folks off of the criminal justice track uh, to those areas and have the police be focused on fighting crime, not addressing mental health and addiction. I think another thing that some people really talk about when they say defund the police is talking about reducing or retargeting resources. In some of the urban areas, I think you see that where people are frustrated with sort of the paramilitary training and presentment of law enforcement, maybe moving resources off of uh, things like armored vehicles and sort of paramilitary dress and and that type of uh, material that's provided to law enforcement and steering those resources into more training community policing. I think a third thing that's actually happened is the idea of restructuring and reconstituting police departments. The most prominent example is Camden, New Jersey. Um, a few years ago, it eliminated its police department and it restructured it in, in partnership with the county and create a regional police force. And they let every officer go. They hired many of them back. They restructured their training and policies and it's been a real success story. But in that instance, defunding the police was restructuring the police department. The last thing that I think some people talk about who maybe are the most sincere when they say defund the police is, can you reimagine community engagement and policing? Are there other ways to build safe communities other than having the police be the front line on building safe communities? I think in Minneapolis, St. Paul, where there's been some pretty aggressive discussion about defund the police. That's what I've heard from some folks who are talking about that is, can we reimagine building safe communities where policing isn't the front line of that? But I just don't think much of anyone seriously means defund the police in the end. They're really talking about, you know, realigning, retargeting, restructuring or reimagining policing. You know, not to put you on the spot, but how would that work in a state like South Dakota with its, like, rural nature? I mean, most of the policy discussions that I hear about is focused on sort of the lack of police in certain areas of the state where you have, you know, individual officers who are covering, you know, vast swaths of territory. I mean, what maybe in South Dakota could we do to um, improve some of these aspects? 
Yeah, I mean, I think you've hit on a real key in all this, which is that policing is a very localized um, issue, uh, and it, and it's responded to by local governments. And so one of the things I think South Dakota does really well is there's some consistency that um, our law enforcement training center in Peer, through the Division of Criminal Investigation, really kind of provides an umbrella that that gets some consistency across communities of training and, and those things. So I think that's a real positive for us. Um, the unified judicial system and the Helmsley trust and Pennington County are working together on a grant, uh, to get some more resources towards mental health and addiction. I think that's, that's a real plus for us because you are right. A lot of our law enforcement agencies are overstretched on geography and personnel and, you know, taking those areas where criminality is actually a symptom of a larger underlying problem and steering, you know, those citizens into those resources as opposed to county jails is huge. Um, but, you know, how you address the reality that for someone on the Rosebud Reservation, the closest law enforcement is an hour plus away Um that's a challenge and, it, and it's a challenge that's hard to address because you're probably just not going to be able to have law enforcement standing by in all those communities, given the population, and the geography. It's, it's tough. You know, to speak about the Brianna Taylor case for a moment, she was um, killed after police entered her home with something called a no knock warrant. What is a no knock warrant? Why are they used? Why are they controversial? Yeah. So a no knock warrant is exactly what it says. It'd be a warrant. Um, from a court, uh, if, if law enforcement wants to search someone's house, they go to the court and they get a search warrant. And in some instances, those search warrants provide either that the warrant can be executed at night uh, or in certain daylight hours. And sometimes it provides that the officers can execute the warrant without knocking and announcing. There's a general common law rule that officers before entering should knock and announce their presence. So it's it's exactly that they can enter your property without knocking and announcing. Um, why are they used primarily either because the officers demonstrate probable cause they have concerns about officer safety. If you're going to execute a warrant on a, a known violent or suspected violent uh, offender and announcing may put the officers at safety risk or other third parties at safety risk, that would be a reason or if there is a concern that evidence might be destroyed by knocking and announcing, you know, a common example is someone's going to flush the drugs down the toilet, um, that that would provide a basis for uh, no knock. Why are they controversial? Well, you know, you've had some high profile instances like Breonna Taylor, where a no knock warrant has been tied to use of force that is, is, deadly or controversial. And so it's just been tied to some controversial instances. The second reason is um, I think inherently when you have an entry where there's not an announcement, there's a surprise element to it. And it's just a more confrontational um, kind of environment. And so that's generally be going to be controversial for people. It's a, it's a more contentious setting. It's more inclined towards a use of force or violence from the person against whom the warrant is being executed. And I think um, that's hard for people to wrestle with. 
You know, according to Pew Research, in 2017, um, African Americans represented about 12% of the U.S. population, but 33% of the sentenced prison population. Whites accounted for about 64% of adults and about 30% of prisoners, and Hispanics represented about 16% of the total adult U.S. population, but accounted for almost 23% of inmates. I guess what contributes to these divides? Um, is it a policing problem, a legal problem, a social problem? Yes. Well, you know, total answer. I mean, it's it's all the above. Um, you certainly have... You certainly have minority populations over-representing the criminal justice system. I mean, here in South Dakota, one thing you didn't identify there is the over-representative nature of Native adults in the criminal justice system. That's certainly something we have to wrestle with. Um, I wish I had a great answer about what the underlying cause is because then I'd tell you how we'd go try and fix it. But it's a little bit of everything. I mean, you certainly have greater you have greater levels of poverty in those communities in some instances, which can really drive these co-occurring causes like mental health and addiction. And and that ultimately ties to low level criminal behavior. You have systemic problems um, like bail reform and, and those areas where someone who is from a poor community is more likely to be detained pending trial. And that leads to, you know, problems of their ability to maintain employment and, and then, you know, the likelihood that they plead guilty because uh, it resolves the case, they get out of jail and it becomes a bit of a cycle. Um, you certainly have degrees to which there are racial inequities and, and, and racism in some instances baked into the cake on our criminal justice policy and approaches to it. I mean, um, I think if you look at how we approach drugs in the 80s and 90s that had a disproportionate impact on black communities. And um, that becomes a bit of a cycle. Um, hard for me to tell you exactly how you start unwinding all that and solving it, but it is a little bit of everything, I think. You know, to maybe back up a second and take it from a more philosophical angle, what is the role of law in social, social justice movements? Well, you know, I, there's really no aspect of human existence that the law doesn't touch on. Um, and so I think it's paramount. Um, I think the law does a couple of things. I think one thing is the law can provide a tool to effectuate social justice. I mean, think back to desegregation. I mean, um, the litigation about school desegregation coming in Brown versus Board of Education and then the integration of schools from the 50s and 60s was law used as a tool to effectuate social justice. I think, you know, another thing is on on the positive law side with the statutes that we enact, um, law can advance equity and justice. We've seen that with criminal justice reform. We've seen that with affirmative action over the years with providing opportunity to to minority communities. We've seen that with expanded educational opportunities. So, you know, the law can be a tool to tear down the impediments to social justice, and it can be a tool to build up structures that advance social justice. I guess, what do you think are the biggest challenges facing oh, the law, if, if that entity sort of exists, in promoting social justice? I think a key problem is it's a very 
complicated issue with multiple causes. And so for the law to solve that, it requires a coordinated, sustained effort. Um, just doing criminal justice reform won't solve all the problems. Just doing educational reform won't solve all the problems. Just eliminating you know, vestiges of racism in the legal system won't solve all the problems. You have to do all of those things and you know, attack people's belief systems as well, which the law doesn't do a great job of getting their arms around. So it's that it requires a sustained, coordinated effort addressing a lot of causes. And as a society, we're not always great at that level of, of patience and commitment. So maybe more specifically, I mean, what role do you think that public institutions like universities, for example, can play in ending systemic and institutional racism? I think there are a lot of things they can do. I mean, you know, one of the first ones is research and education, um, conversations like this, right, where you interact with experts uh, in the field who are conducting research on issues surrounding criminal justice, surrounding sociology, surrounding education, right? So here at the law school, we have clinics that provide access. Uh, we're doing research. We're providing policy guidance. Those are key things we can do is to provide resource, research and resources to people trying to solve these problems. I think access is huge. Education um, can be a step forward for folks. So as a university, providing access to everyone to higher education as an opportunity to advance themselves is huge. And I think really imperative is understanding for all of us. And so building toolkits of openness and thoughtful conversation and critical reflection and self-evaluation for students coming into higher education is huge. Because to address these problems, we have to understand difference and identify and engage with our differences. We need to seek out points of commonality. And that requires having difficult conversations in a patient, open way. And none of us is really sort of built to do that without working at it. Higher ed can help us be prepared to do that. I think particularly here in South Dakota, it's so important to do that with our students because coming to a college campus may be the first time where a lot of students have a sustained encounter with someone who isn't like them, who doesn't look like them, who isn't of the same race, who doesn't have the same socioeconomic background. This can be one of the first places where we have the sustained opportunity to have those types of conversations and build up both the skills and the inclination to have the conversations necessary to attack these problems. You know, I think you probably have an interesting perspective on this just because of a number of the professional positions that you've held. You've had to look at, I think, a lot of these issues from a different, or a number of different angles. You've been the federal public defender. You work for, um, you know, the executive or were the chief of staff for go then Governor Mike Rounds. I mean, you've worked in civil practice as well, or private practice, I should say. Um, you know, is, is there anything about all of these issues just from that variety of perspectives that you have that you would want people to maybe know um, just about the complexity of all these issues? That, I mean, they're, they're stunningly complex. Um, 
they're persistent. Uh, we have not solved the issue of racism in the hundreds of years of our existence um, as a nation, and we're not going to solve it this year. Um, but we can continue to make progress, and we can continue to be committed to the effort to make progress. And if we're all engaging each other in good faith and openness, we can make progress. This is going to be slow, painful, halting work, but it's imperative to stick with it. You know, I, I use the phrase in other settings, planting trees, not flowers. Um, and that's what we're doing here, too. Dean Fulton, do you have any parting thoughts? Yeah, I mean, I, I think two, Michael. I mean, w w one of them is to the law students and and the alumni of this of this law school. I mean, how we address all of these problems is going to be decided in the courtrooms and the boardrooms and the committee rooms of our state, local, and national governments. And lawyers are going to be in all of those rooms. And so for us as a profession, it's imperative that we think about these things and identify what we want our world to look like and work to make it a little bit better. Because if we don't, someone's going to make it a little bit worse in the decisions that get made in those rooms. So we've got an opportunity and obligation to contribute. The second thing I would just say to all of us as citizens and as human beings is starting and underlying all of this is we can engage everyone around us by recognizing and honoring the human dignity in the person sitting across from us and engaging with them from a place of love. Um, sounds trivial, but it's imperative. And so human dignity and love really underlies all this. And it's what we should all aspire to do every day when we get out of bed. Dean Fulton, thank you so much for discussing these issues with us. And we're really excited to see what the future holds here at the law school. We're excited for uh, year two. Thank you for listening to Credit Hour, Voices Amplified. Tune in next week as we continue to explore issues involving race, social justice, and criminal justice reform.